Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by oil aficionado Gaurav Sharma. Gaurav, of course, may be known to some of you. He is a regular commentator on all matters for broadcast media, including CNBC, the BBC, Al Jazeera and TRT World. He also regularly serves as a panellist, speaker and or moderator at several signature energy sector events. Past examples have included the International Petroleum Week in London, the World Petroleum Congress in Doha and several World Energy Council events. So a very warm welcome to you, Gaurav, and thank you for sharing some of your time with us. Thanks, Richard. It's, uh, it's good to be speaking to you again, although, although I wish it was in, in better circumstances. In fact, we're in very trying times for both the, the market as well as the oil market. So, you know, it's, it's a crucial time to be having this discussion. Absolutely. And with that in mind, if we kick off with the, uh, the energy markets, of course, we're currently as we speak in a situation with Brent oil, somewhere around 28 bucks a barrel, which is a near 58% decline in the year to date. So I guess the first question just has to be, what on earth is going on with the oil price? I mean, if you look at the front month contracts, they're taking an absolute plastering and they could well have been in a, in a, in a worse off position hadn't uh, the, the, the good and the great at OPEC plus uh, come together uh, and brokered some sort of a deal, at least on paper. Now, 58% is a, is a key figure, my friend, that you mentioned, because if you take the first quarter of the year as a cutoff, it, the picture was even worse. You were down some 66%. Now, what uh, the good folks at OPEC Plus, OPEC Plus Plus, G20, you know, whatever you, you description you give them, all they've done is man, manage to, they managed to stem the bleeding. But forward prices remain dire because demand remains dire. And there's obviously this element of oversupply on the basis that despite this 10 million barrels record cut that OPEC Plus mentioned, it's clearly not done quite the job, certainly from an investment point of view. And indeed, the oil price, as we say, uh, remains sharply down. Yes, uh, excellent point. I think the, the issue here is that the oil market actually didn't need to be here. On the 6th of March, the Saudis and the Russians, they fell out with each other. Uh, and a market kerfuffle broke out. At, at the same time, demand was in, in, in sort of a, a complete downward spiral. The Russians and the Saudis had a tiff, and they ended up creating a situation whereby not only did you have uh, a, a sort of a crisis of confidence in, in where the demand was going, but also a, a massive oversupply. And then the Saudis went a little bit into belligerent mode. They said they're going to ramp up their production to 12, 12 million barrels per day. They hired 18 VLCCs, all sorts of rumors doing the rounds in the market. And the market took its, its cue. The, the floor completely vanished. So they, I, at the time, I, I was asked at the time, and I said that the moment West Texas breaches 20, I bet they'll be back on the negotiating table. And that is exactly uh, what happened over the Easter break. They came together. They conjured up this uh, this sort of approximately 10 million battle per day cuts that you, that you allude to. But, but Richard, is that really sufficient? I very much doubt it for the simple reason that even if we take uh, this cut sort of underpinned by the Saudis and the Russians at face value, that still only accounts for a third of the demand decline that we are likely to see in a worst case scenario. So 
what OPEC plus plus did over the Easter break, well, it came too late to rescue April and it's too little for May and June. And hence, what we notice is uh, uh, by the time of recording uh, this podcast, we notice that West Texas is down about 10%. It's, it's, it's struggling to hold $17 right now. And Brent is sort of skirting either side of 28 bucks. So, so that tells you everything that the market is, is just not convinced. And if I, if I may very briefly add another point, two and a half million dollars of this cut is, is sort of predicated on the basis that the Russians stick to their word. Throughout the course of 2019, Moscow has singularly failed to comply with what they promised OPEC plus, even with the old deal, when we did not have this coronavirus crisis on our hands. So of the 12 months of 2019, the Russians only complied in three. So how can, can us in the trading community take it at face value? Very interesting point. So with that in mind, I guess the next question kind of splits into two. Into two. How low could you see the oil price going? And is there anything that the likes of OPEC or OPEC plus could actually do to stem any such decline in the shorter term? I'll come to the price in a second, but I think in terms of what OPEC Plus can or cannot do, well, well, we had some sound bites today. If you, if we, if we looked at the news wires, uh, the Russians and Saudis are saying, if needs be, and if the global economy needs to be balanced, we will all come together and perhaps work on a further cut. All right, well, that's fine. We park that uh, bus of cuts to one side, and 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 look at look at what's happening elsewhere in the world. We're all flying less. We're all driving less. We're consuming less. We're not going out. Aviation fuel and petrochemicals are a key driver of both consumer demand and, of course, uh, predicated on, on what, how, how well or how unwell the transportation business is. Both are suffering. So no matter what OPEC does or doesn't, the near-term demand, i.e. especially all the way up to, up to, I would say, first or second week of July, looks pretty dire. So they can keep cutting what they want, but if all of us aren't going out, on traveling as much, it won't really have much of an impact. Fantastic. So we, we could well see on that basis some further downward pressure uh, on, on both uh, oil prices. I, I suspect so. I think, I think what we're looking at is a V-shaped recovery. Uh, the question here, Richard, is how steep is the V going to be? And now I come, come to the prices. I would, for the front month contract, and we're, we're with the May contract for, for the West Texas and the June contract for, for Brent, so a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, in, in terms of the, 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 the cycle of the contract. But I, I genuinely see the West Texas going to the lower teens, flirting with the lower teens. And I see Brent flirting with the lower 20s. And it's going to get a lot worse before it, it, it gets better. And that would be the deep end of this V-shaped recovery that I, that I refer to. At the top end of the V, we're looking at somewhere in the region of, say, towards the end of the third quarter, early fourth quarter, or might even be the early part of the first quarter of 2021, whereby which we'll see some sort of a, a knock back up to about $40, $42. Then the next cache of PMI data is with us from China, China and uh, the, the wider OECD, etc. But, but if you look at China's data today, it's dire. It's a 6.6% or thereabouts contraction from the Chinese economy. The Americans are pretty much going to admit that they're in contraction mode too. And uh, Europe is likely to face uh, some negative headwinds, if not a full-blown recession. But it, it is right now looking at two negative quarters. And then oil is going to, uh, to mirror quite a bit of that as the economy struggles to uh, find its feet. So $40, yes, we'll come to, come to about, about $40, but, but that'll be the top end of the V. 
the bottom end of this this V-shaped recovery could be pretty, pretty painful. Going off on a, a slight tangent, with oil currently at these levels, do you foresee that there's a possibility uh, we'll see a wave of US shale drillers going bust, for example? Excellent question. I think I think this this is a, a revisiting of the 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 2015-2016 uh, oil market crisis, except that it's four times the the magnitude, given that we have a global pandemic. Now, at the time, the Saudis actually only tried if they could somehow uh, hit the Americans for six, and that they'll uh, and that if they keep their taps open, they'll they'll knock the Americans out. There was a lot of distress, a lot of pain, as such as the such as what we are seeing right now. But what eventually ended up happening was that all the Saudis managed to do by keeping their taps open in 2015, 2016, was to clear the froth out of the market. This time around, that froth would be cleared twice over. Silly money that went into into these shale acreages at thirty, forty thousand dollars an acreage and that sort of money. Well, these guys who spend silly money, well, they're toast, Richard, in, in my book. But at the same time, there are a number of folks within the shale business, sort of mom and pop independents producing some made in the region of 50 to 100,000 barrels, not really the kind of producers the, that register on, on, on the big radar. And these guys can keep plugging away at about 20 to 25. Now, I, I do stress that West Texas is below 20 right now, but they can keep plugging away. So like 2015, 2016, the coronavirus epidemic and, and the slump in prices, it's going to clear the froth of the shale. Amer um, the Americans might lose in terms of headline production, they might lose a million, million and a half barrels, uh, but they will not be completely knocked out, of, uh, knocked out of the game. That's fascinating. Now, a couple of the most widely held shares held by our customers um, are the oil majors, the UK oil majors, BP and Shell. Um, now, in terms of BP, obviously it had that disastrous Gulf of Mexico spill in 2010 when it had to suspend its dividend for three consecutive quarters. Shell, on the other hand, has maintained its dividend uh, since the Second World War. And during the last oil crisis that you mentioned, around 2015, it was notable that both uh, chief executives of both BP and Shell said that in terms of financial priorities, the dividend was up there at number one in terms of keeping it. And to be fair, they were both true to their word. Now that we're testing those sort of similar levels again, do you see any kind of threat to the dividend of either BP or Shell? Look, maintaining the dividend for, for both these companies is, uh, is absolutely vital because uh, they, they have a, a number of uh, funds, especially pension funds, have a lot of exposure to BP and Shell. And a lot of fund managers consider both stocks to be, to be very bankable. Now, what we, what we know, if you, if you sort of square both these stocks against, against the, the coronavirus crisis and the slump it's caused in the price, I think what both both blue chips are trying to do is to diversify and diversify from the corporations quite substantially. Now, Bob Dudley has not necessarily, before he left BP, didn't necessarily draw a line in the sand uh, for, for the Macondo crisis in, in legal terms. There are the, the little niggles here and there. But what he did was he again put a, put a stop to some of the outlandish issues that were haunting BP. So that, that, was, a, that was a key achievement. It allowed BP to move on. And, and it also ties in slightly to your last question. Some of the big boys are stepping into the shale business. BP, being one of them, 
having spent $10.5 billion acquiring uh, former BHP uh, acreage down in, the, down in the States. There might be a much reduced dividend, but in, in case of both BP and Shell, I, I think it might be some near-term threat that it might be, I mean, we're also seeing that they're canceling their, their share buybacks, et cetera. But there is no long-term threat to the dividend because both these companies, they're quite uh, ESG uh, cognizant. They're doing a lot of work on that field and they want to basically over the next, in, in five-year phases, over the next 10 to 20 years, future-proof themselves. So I, I don't see the dividend threat. Might be, it'll, it'll take a knock. Without, without a shadow of doubt, it'll take a knock. But to keep the fund managers on side, I doubt that there'll be a suspension of, of dividend, you know, of the likes that we've recently heard, heard in recent weeks from various uh, various companies. Yes, you're absolutely right. And of course, we've, we've heard over recent weeks from both BP and Shell around some fairly swinging cost-cutting attempts, um, such as the suspension of share buyback programs, reduction in capex and so on, without... Um, more uh, notable by its absence was any reference to the dividend. So investors will certainly be hoping um, that that remains the case. Um, are there any within the oil sector and for oil sector fans, are there any other stocks that you've got an eye on or quite like the look of at the moment? I, I keep an eye on, 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 of course, both the blue chips uh, and a couple of stocks more. So let's start with BP, which is actually my pick of the, the oil stocks right now. Uh, it's, it's sort of flirting with around a 300p level. Uh, as, as we speak, it's, it's fallen as low as 230 in recent times. Uh, I still think BP is a strong buy. And may I attach a caveat that I have exposure to the market? So uh, j- just need to put that disclaimer out there. I think BP, for me, BP is a strong uh, long-term buy. I'm net long on BP and I, I, I fully expect BP's price to, uh, maybe not overnight, but, but of course in the, in the next 12 to 18 months, begin its uh, climb back up towards uh, 500p. For Shell, it is again a very bankable dividend stock. I think it's worth holding on to what you have, even if even if the listeners of this uh, podcast are not minded to buy more. Uh, it's 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 flirting with the level of around thirteen hundred to fourteen hundred p. So if if there are some opportunistic buyers, it might be worth their while. But certainly, this is not the time to sell a stock that has never disappointed in terms of the the dividend since the Second World War, as you as you mentioned. Another thing is I, I, I often keep an eye on, on, on the services guys. Both of us acknowledge that the, what's going on in the industry is pretty dire. A lot of these projects, the, the CapEx spend is all being put on hold. And lo and behold, what has that done to Petrofax price? Another stock that I watch. Petrofax is sort of dancing around the range of 160 to 180p. There's also the overhang of that SFO uh, inquiry that's, uh, that's, that's lurking on their, on their heads for a while. Now, what I would say to people who are listening, is that I expect a bounce back for Petrofac as well because right now things might look dire, but when and well, I, we have to definitely say when, not if the world gets a handle on the coronavirus crisis and activity bounces back, and EPC guys start doing their project and the capex returns, the likes of Petrofac will be among the first beneficiaries of that spend when the money comes back. So Petrofac is also one one stock that at, at current levels of 160 and so on. Uh, looks pretty attractive. Rockhopper, a lot of us talk about it, stock that has disappointed many, please some. But right now, Rockhopper is down to practically penny stock levels at 6 to 7p. So that's another one for, for listeners to keep an eye out for. But, but definitely for me, BP is the pick of the lot. Well, we've had some extremely insightful comments from you, Gaurav. And again, many 
thanks to you for spending some of your time with us and thanks to you the listener for tuning in and do look out for our next interactive investor podcasts goodbye